Welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast feed and uh, our interview today with Deputy Jonathan Latoc. Uh, he stood at the last election as a partner in the Guernsey Partnership of Independence and persuaded 8,636 of you to part with your votes. And uh, he was duly elected onto the Policy and Resources Committee. He is the lead member for External Relations and Constitutional Affairs on that committee. He is also a former Chief Minister and indeed an ordained Christian minister at the Rock Community Church. Welcome to the podcast, Deputy Latoc. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, and, and here on this uh, rather special week, because um, this is uh, uh, the Platinum Jubilee uh, celebration is uh, almost upon us. It's been uh, much anticipated. And, um, and you are, I think, the, the perfect person to speak to at this particular time, because, um, well, it's an, an historic occasion for our relationship, perhaps, with the uh, with the crown um so what does it mean do you think for you and indeed for for the island to to be um having this celebration at this time in what is otherwise a fairly turbulent time in, mm. in international yeah. affairs that's a really good question and i think probably the context um is an important one bearing in mind what the island has gone through as well in in, in the past um, so, I mean, for me personally, I think it's really an, an important time to reflect on a long history of uh, connections to uh, the Crown as successors to the Dukes of Normandy. Um, what makes us unique in these islands uh, in terms of being the oldest possession of the crown. So if you know you would take everything else away, um, the last remaining uh, possession that was once uh, that of William the Conqueror um, are the Channel Islands. And so that long history gives us uh, an incredible heritage. At the same time, like I said, around and about us, um, there are wars and rumours of wars, and uh, it's a different sort of setting perhaps to what we would have imagined a year ago when some of the celebrations for the Platinum Jubilee were being put together. And I think our freedom, um, we've just obviously um, passed celebrating Liberation Day, but our freedom in terms of connection to the Crown and what the liberty that that has given is, is something worth reflecting on during this time. But certainly personally, that's something that I think I've got to recognise um, try and support, try and uh, also just make people aware of some of the things we take for granted. I mean, one of the difficulties with uh, look, comparing ourselves with elsewhere, which lots of people do in lots of political areas, is that we forget um, the good things that we have and have had for quite a long time, um, which make us who we are. The fact that we can govern ourselves, you know, 65,000 or so of us here in, in Guernsey, is remarkable in this day and age. Um, there are many small jurisdictions that we just not manage to do that. Um, the fact that um, we are able to uh, make our own laws and largely autonomous in terms of our own uh, place in the world, I think is something to celebrate. And that's down to our connection to the Crown. If it wasn't for that, we would be in a very different place. So there, there are many, many things, but I think it's worth spending some time in the extra days we've got uh, to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee to be grateful for those things and to um, account for them, if you like, rather than just take them for granted. And do you, um, as well as your uh, official role for the States, do you find yourself... Um, uh, feeling a kind of enthusiast are you a royalist do you, do you you know are you a monarchy enthusiast for it from that point of view i wouldn't put me myself down as a royalist in fact some people have, have certainly uh, accused me of being republican i'm i'm sort of neither one nor the other i think uh, our connection with a constitutional monarchy is very healthy for us i think having um the crown in terms of our government um having an accountability is really important and in terms of the effects it has uh, that that has upon the UK government not being able to treat us like an overseas territory I think is really really important because our connection is with the crown historically not with the UK government and that's something that I'm regularly um, uh, repeating when people confuse us with say a former colony. 
And is, so is this one of your constant battles then? Because um, I imagine there's a certain churn with uh, officers and indeed politicians in the UK to whom you might have to explain this over and over yes. again. But, um, you know, perhaps we could go into this um, now then with, with, you know, issues like permissive extent clauses and, and, mm. and what have you. It, is it a constant battle to have to remind the UK that our relationship is primarily with the Crown um, and, and as you say, that we, we, we don't, they don't have dominion over us as, a, as a, an, a national entity. Yes, sadly, it has become so. I mean, it didn't used to be so much with the UK. It was obviously a constant mantra in terms of um, explaining our unique identity to the rest of the world very often because we're very small and people won't have realised um, uh, other places in the world may have heard of Guernsey because of the cows or a book or something like that, but they won't understand our constitutional relationship. Historically, perhaps going back to when I was first elected in uh, 2000, um, there wasn't a lot of turnover, I think, in Whitehall and in the UK, and there was some very long-serving uh, politicians who fully understood uh, our relationship. So it wasn't so much the case back in those days. When I got involved, probably in 2012, after that election in external affairs for the first time, um, it became clear that there was more turnover of staff, particularly at the Ministry of Justice, which was obviously the um, point of connection between us and uh, the UK government. Um, and that has increased in recent years. So, yes, sadly, what we're doing very often is um, explaining again, no, you can't do that because we're not the same as uh, an overseas territory. We're not the same as the British Virgin Isles. That isn't how our governor um, operates here. He hasn't got those sorts of powers. Why? Because uh, we have had our own government for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that dates back to 1204, as I'm sure many local people know, the right for us to govern ourselves, um, but remain faithful to the Crown. And that's something that uh, regularly, as you alluded to, now we're seeing some challenges to, and constitutionally... Without a written uh, constitutional a constitutional arrangement, the only way in which we can defend that is through relationship and uh, external engagement from people like the Chief Minister and myself. Is, is, has there been any impetus for um, or any, any thoughts along the lines of establishing a, a written constitution then, or at least if not for the entire Commonwealth, but, but for our role and our relationship with the, uh, the Crown and the UK? Yes. It's not something I would rush into because that has its the other problem of establishing something written in stone, as it were, that's then very difficult to change or to argue for. And historically, um, I think um, there are some dangers there which would make me a bit nervous of going down that line because there are some things we still discover. Uh, when we've got a challenge of some sort, we go back or um, you know, somebody from the Crown Officers Department say, well, actually, look, there's this instant incident in the past. If we establish something for today, it might not encapsulate all of that. I think probably one of the best ways forward, and we've seen this in the Brexit process. I mean, I, I, I don't like going on record, although I've been quoted quite a lot recently as saying there's some benefits from Brexit from our point of view. But one has been that we've had to work, or should I put it the other way around, the UK government has had to work more closely with us in terms of their responsibility to negotiate for our interests, even when they differ from that of the UK. And because of that need, um, we've had to set up a number of MOUs, uh, Memorandum of Understanding, and those memorandums have helped us. They're not, um, you know, they're not like a sort of Bill of Rights or a constitutional um, piece of paper in that sense. They are more uh, liquid in, in that way, but they are documents we can refer to and form a sort of scaffolding around, uh, around which other things can be um, built. And I think that's probably, for me, that's, that's the, the way that's appropriate at the moment. So uh, as I imagine the workload must have increased somewhat. And have your staff increased? I mean, have you got yeah. the resources to get all this work done? Well, um, 
in 2012, when I, I, I was elected and that and became deputy chief minister, I was home minister as well, um, to Peter Hartwood, who was chief minister at the time, um, we decided around policy council that I would have the external affairs and European affairs um, uh, mandate. And the team in the external relations group at the time was three people, basically. Um, two and a half, you could say, really, but let's say three. Um, now we have seven and a half stroke eight. Um, so, uh, and most of that comes as a result of Brexit planning. Um, uh, but I know Jersey, for example, has uh, certainly um, way more than us, I think in the 30s. Um, and that's because we've needed to increase certainly our legal um, side in the team. We've had to have far more engagement. And that doesn't mean that St. James's Chambers aren't involved. They are as well. But we've needed more dedicated um, legal advice because some of the issues, both challenges and opportunities, involve a more forensic legal mind to ensure that we've covered every base. Uh, that's a good thing, I think, in many ways, because there are opportunities. Um, post-Brexit but it means that it costs us more because the team is more than doubled. Are you able to illustrate all of this with, with a particular example of a, a, a policy area where there's been difficulty such as you've described and that's created some work and where we're having to be careful about how we characterise things? I can think of loads, small and large. I mean probably the most obvious one that uh, listeners will be aware of uh, is, is fisheries during the Brexit uh, dispute because um, there were a number of things that occurred quite rapidly, some which we ha were prepared for and some we weren't. Guernsey, unlike Jersey, so Guernsey was very different certainly to the Isle of Man, didn't really have any issues with, with fisheries, a few Irish fishermen I think, but in terms of the EU there wasn't really a major, a major issue there. Jersey had the Bay of Granville ag agreement, which was already an issue with them, the French and the British, but we didn't have that. We were operating um, largely under our own regime that was based on the 1960 um, London um, arrangements, the London Convention. And the UK uh, decided to fairly swiftly and unilaterally um, pull out of the London uh, Convention, which left us with nothing. So in the midst of moving towards a post-Brexit negotiation, we were left potentially with no regulations in which to license French vessels here. Now, that obviously was a concern for the French. It's not something that we did um, because... We didn't have the, the, the opportunity to unilaterally come out of that convention. And the UK hadn't realised, um, because of lack of consultation before that, that that would cause major problems. We had to legislate through a number of ordinances in the space of two weeks to put in temporary measures. Now, beforehand... One, we wouldn't have spotted this problem until it actually occurred. So I was able to, so for example, I was able to be flagged up fairly quickly. This is going to cause an immediate problem. We were able to talk to the UK. I was then able to talk to um, politicians in uh, La Manche, Normandy, and, and, and nationally in France. I think we, we managed that fairly well and said, look, it is a problem, but we are going to ensure that the status quo can remain because we don't want to... Uh, you know, effectively look like we are punching you in the face in the midst of uh, negotiating uh, a, a better deal f uh, post-Brexit. Um, and that's something that uh, if we didn't have the staff, we wouldn't have done it in that time. Th there was some uh, aggravation, naturally, because, well, we were aggravated by, by what had happened. But if we managed to handle it. And very often, I think, having the right staff, and I'm, uh, I'm very lucky, grateful, um, I can't praise my team enough they, they work as a team very well together they support me they support others to get involved and that's something we can get onto as well but you know the, my role was created one of the last things I did as chief minister was to create this role because the chief minister used to do virtually everything or delegate to someone else bef beforehand but it was very difficult to do that creating this role um uh, 
without knowing that Brexit was going to happen, was actually proved to be actually a very good thing to do because it, it has been busy. And that looks like it's set to continue um, post, well, now we are in post-Brexit because of all the new free trade agreements, which we have an opportunity of getting involved in that we would never have had before. Um, so I'll come to the free trade agreements for me, but um, in terms of that uh, example that you've given then, um, you know, I can imagine you all scurrying around trying to sort out this problem in the midst of this um, clumsy action, well, I assume clumsy rather than malicious, on the part of uh, a, a UK department. Um, you had the opportunity, I know, to um, explain all of these issues and how they came about to a parliamentary committee back in September. Have you had a, a, another meeting with them since then, or is one planned whereby you can continue to explain um, through that committee to Parliament yes. the, the issues that we face and how we want to sort of protect our situation? Yeah, that's a very good point as well. So, um, yes, in fact, there have been, there's been a, a, um, a House of Lords committee. We've got invitations for a number of other um, post-Brexit EU committees and also on the more positive side, engagement in free trade. Um, there's, there's select committees responsible for that. Um, the Justice Select Committee continues to take an active role in giving us opportunities for those things. And that's all increased from our point of view, from what it was years ago. It was a rare um, occasion when uh, one of the Crown Dependencies got invited to uh, give evidence to the Select Committee. Now, um, you know, we're in a position sometimes to say, actually, we're a bit too busy to, to do that. So I think all in, in terms of that engagement much, much better than it was. Ministerial engagement is much better. Um, and again, uh, really, it was only crisis management in the past. You got an opportunity to talk to a minister, either because there was a major issue they wanted to talk to you about, uh, or, um, you know, you bumped into them at a party conference. We started sending um, ministers across to party conferences, I think, no, just over 10 years ago. And to begin with, it was very much ad hoc. But now we, we have far more open doors to engage, which, which is all positive, irrespective of what you think of the rest of the politics around Brexit. And, and will that survive any um, election results in the UK? I mean, is it, is it at sort of civil service officer level strongly enough so that, you know, if the government changes, it's not all going to be swept away? Yeah, I, I mean, that is a concern. But that's why we're working hard to ensure that we're not taking it for granted. So um, I ensure that, for example, at the moment, we haven't got a dedicated minister at um, the Ministry of Justice um, because um, Lord Wolfson, David Wolfson, has resigned. And I was, I was very um, upset about that because he had proved to be a very good ally on a number of issues. Nevertheless, without that in, in, in place, we're not just going to leave it. We were having monthly meetings, irrespective of whether there was, uh, you know, major things on the, on the agenda. That was really important. And bearing in mind that we... We're a bit more complicated than the other Crown Dependencies because they've got Alderney and Sark as well, and they have a slightly different constitutional relationship to the Crown. So it is, there's often things, there's never a lack of things to discuss. But in the past, the idea of monthly meetings, I mean, I just don't remember that ever happening. So we've, we've got that in place. So we're making sure now uh, that as soon as a, a minister is appointed, we get back into that regime. And uh, just to finish off on the uh, the, the fishing thing the, mm -hmm. as the illustration, where are we now with that? Is that all completely sorted? <laughs> can we, ex no, can we no, expect any further no. issues? I keep on saying, don't hold your breath. I, you know, we've got over the you know the first uh, major uh, number of concerns and issues in terms of the licensing process, and and that is in place. Um, we now, along with um, you know, the other Crown Dependencies and certainly Jersey and the UK, are in, are in this um, place of trying to quantify uh, on the licences what nature and extent means. That's to do with the technical ways of fishing that are sustainable so that our seas are not, you know, we might give a license to someone, but if they come in with a pair, or coming in pair trawlers and just dredge or dredge through um, our stocks, that will not be helpful. So something, some of those things are um, easier and understood between us and the French. Other things 
Um, there are technical issues because of the different ways, actually, in which we fish, and also in terms of licenses being um, passed on from one boat to another as as people change their boats, which is a natural thing to happen. But again, um, that can mean that some of the methods of, of, of fishing would change. Um, they're very technical and I don't get involved in that. I mean, really, my role is to be the front face. And then, obviously, in terms of the actual enforcement and the running of the regime on, under our regime, that's done by Sea Fisheries, which comes uh, in, in, in the, the management side of it under economic development. And similarly, in Jersey, um, although it's their environment department that would deal with that, but uh, Senator Gorse, their Minister for External Relations, would, would do what I do, which fronts the issue. But when it get, deals with technical issues, it has to come down to working between offices. I would say that our relationship with um, the French regionally and nationally is as good as it ever has been. It's at the, the best level. So we've got the best chance of getting this right. But it's not going to be easy because, first and foremost, even if we were to get it right... If the UK, we're, we're dealing with um, an agreement that is between the UK and the EU. And if the UK and the EU fall apart over the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, it doesn't matter whether we've, we've got it right on, on fisheries, we will be affected by that. The whole thing could be blown out of the water, if you don't mind the pun. Um, but that's where we are. But that doesn't mean we don't. We shouldn't work hard. We are working hard to do our best for our fishermen and for our seas and for the future sustainability of these waters, which we now have um, control over, which is another, um, you know, in a sense, benefit of, of uh, Brexit that might have been much harder to achieve if we'd not been faced with, with those sorts of obstacles. Um, and you are, of course, the, uh, the External Relations and Constitutional Affairs uh, representative. Um, when you are representing uh, our states here, um, you are also representing the bailiwick. And so your relationship with Alderney and Sark, although you're not the only conduit through which they communicate with the, with the government, nevertheless must be absolutely crucial to ensure, you've mentioned them, um, that you know, their, rep- their interests are uh, because they're different, need also to be represented. So um, are you equally satisfied that the relationship between Guernsey and Alderney and Sark are, are also healthy in that way, such that their interests are being uh, taken care of as well? Uh, yes, well, we had an Alderney, Alderney liaison group that has existed for some time. Um, we have now established a Sark liaison group as well. That that wasn't the case in the past. Um, the relationship with Alderney is different, obviously, to that with Sark. So that further complicates matters. We're in fiscal union, effectively, with Alderney, because an Alderney taxpayer is a Guernsey taxpayer from, from all, all extent and purposes. That's that's how it works. With Sark, that's not like that. So um, we've, we've set up a, a separate group, which I think is good. And then one of the things that I was keen to set up um, like six, seven years ago now, during my time as Chief Minister, was a bailiwick council. And that brings together representatives from Alderney and Sark and Guernsey to discuss matters of mutual concern. So you know, just to be specific, whilst I, might, I may and do represent the bailiwick on certain issues, that's not the case in every issue. Uh, Alderney and Sark still have their own... Uh, rights to represent themselves on particular things where their law is not the same. There's not a, a bailiwick law over, over those things. Um, but internationally, generally, um, and partly because of economies of scale, I do end up representing them. But I'm very grateful to Mark, Deputy Mark Hellyer, who has and does uh, chair um, the uh, the bailiwick council and is involved with those two other liaison groups. Uh, because to be honest, I wouldn't really have the time to do that. And I think it's better that it's shared, particularly in this time where everything is is a little bit up for grabs. But in fisheries, for example, where we have negotiated as one unit together, it has been important to understand fully the issue in Alderney and Sark because they're slightly different. They've got very small, very particular um, artisanal um, f- fishing fleets um, uh, and it would have been very easy if we hadn't 
fully understood that to see them uh, not protected or not protected in an appropriate way for fishing in a sustainable way in this day and age. We've had to fully understand that. And our, our sea fisheries uh, officers have been very good as well in terms of giving us the information we need. And you mentioned um, just a few moments ago that uh, you know an issue such as the Northern Irish Protocol could could uh, scupper all this great work that, that's been done. Um, do you get any insight into progress in those areas? Are you kept informed, or would, do you have to follow it in the news like the rest of us in terms of the way that is progressing? Yeah, I mean it's a bit of both because things can suddenly happen very quickly, and we haven't found out through our own uh, internal connections. We, we find, I mean, that that's the nature of politics, certainly in the last um, perhaps 10 years. It's, it's, it's been like that. But generally speaking, it's, we do have ears to the ground and we do get uh, information uh, ahead of time on quite a number of issues, which I'm very grateful. And that's largely because of the, uh, the, the connectivity that we've worked at over the last few years and trust that comes from that. So at both that's both at official and at uh, ministerial level, I think we've got good information. Um, but um, in this day and age, as I say, uh, things happen sometimes so fast that I'm finding out, like you are, from some breaking news on Twitter. <laughs> but otherwise, they, they are, to some extent, in... Uh allowing you to come by otherwise confidential information so that um, our the consequences for the bailiwick can be um, worked towards and uh, taken care of. Yes, well, I think the, the key and the clue is in the term relations. So it's external relations um, and primarily anything that we, anything that comes under that is dependent upon how our relationships are with individuals there. So that's why... Sometimes it's very important to make a relationship with um, another minister or politician in another jurisdiction, even if there isn't an issue at that point, because you've got a point of call contact if something arises that you can go to and say, well, what's going on here? Can you, can you tell me? I don't understand. And you wouldn't be able to do that if you had no engagement prior to that. It would be very hard to do so. Um, so, you know, my contact list on my phone is made up of a whole load of people, some of whom are actually no longer in politics, um, but they still know because, you know, they've, they've got their ear to the ground like anybody else. And, and those sort of connections are very important in this day and age. If we're going to get a, a, a good picture, a balanced picture, because I think, um, you know, present company excluded, <laughs> the media can be quite myopic and uh, looking at one uh, perspective and it's important that we don't judge everything based on what we read uh, in headlines. Um, you mentioned uh, a little while ago there um, that uh, your work uh, going forward was likely to be focusing a great deal on free trade agreements. Mm. Um, so can you tell us about um, you know uh, that work and uh, its significance to us? Mm. Well, prior to... Um, to the Brexit vote, Guernsey was um, not in the EU, it was a third country generally. However, it was treated as if it was part for goods. For those of us that can uh, you know, remember back that far, um, services, financial services, anything related to that was excluded. So that meant that if the EU had um, free trade agreements with other countries, and it did have a few, but it was very it was very protectionist generally, had a few, we could take part in them for goods, but we couldn't take part in them or benefit from them in any way with regards to services, and certainly not financial services, which is our main industry. Post-Brexit, Britain has taken... Um, um, first of all, it decided it's taken the policy to decide upon all the agreements that it was party to as part of the EU, it would continue for the time being. So you'd start at the base of saying all of those things we will honour and we will um, uh, start at the agreement that we were at with the EU. But we want to widen that far more. We want to be far more open 
liberal, if you like, to trade without restrictions. And we want to um, be far more open uh, to, to many more countries and jurisdictions, particularly the emerging markets. Um, which the EU, perhaps some would say, we're a bit slow at dealing with. Now, for us, there's two things with this. One, um, whereas in, with the EU, we would never have managed to persuade them to open up um, uh, markets for services when we weren't even uh, in alignment with the EU on, on those things. We had to negotiate as a third party, and that's partly why we've got our... Um, Brussels office, we opened our Brussels office so that we could engage properly as third parties when we were criticised by them or when they was likely to. We've, we've achieved equivalence so that we could effectively um, manage to continue that. But it wasn't any wider than that. Now, um, the UK is, and rightly so, um, allowing us to engage not only for goods in new agreements, but potentially for services as well. Now, that means a massive number of markets suddenly open up for us, not just in financial services. And we're talking here for creatives, for, um, uh, you know, um, fintech, for uh, um, all the digital uh, stuff. And one of the new agreements is a Singapore digital agreement, which, um, you know, we are... Um, totally engaged in and that will they might be small in the UK's eyes but actually for us it's quite significant and then there are some very large trading partnerships such as the Trans-Pacific one the TPCPP it's called it's a trips off the tongue doesn't it Um, that involves uh, you know nations in uh, around the Pacific Basin, so Australia, New Zealand, um, but also uh, South American nations and uh, North American nations as well, and Asian nations, and Japan in that. And that could be quite a significant um, deal for us. There's lots of detail in it, which means that for us as a small jurisdiction, we're probably going to have to legislate quite quickly to get in uh, some of the issues that uh, of regulation that currently we're not involved in, that we would have to have some legislation for. Um, but so far, so good. I mean, I think uh, there's eight or nine that are on the boil at the moment, and we're involved in all of those positively. For Guernsey businesses, it could really be uh, an open door to lots of new opportunities. That, that raises a couple of questions. Uh, one is, have we got the staff time at the law offices to, to get through all that work? It sounds like a lot. And also, I, I, I thought you'd made mention in that September parliamentary committee meeting to uh, having uh, missed the boat a bit with arrangement agreements between the UK and Australia and Japan. Is, is that an issue? Yes and no, in, in that... Um, to begin with, um, you know, initially when the UK started doing this, they wanted to get those um, agreements where there there were some already in place between the EU and uh, uh, another nation. They wanted to get them in place. Now, we would have liked to have been included for services in some of those things. We weren't able to, but what we've got are clauses that will allow us to negotiate in the future. And as I said before, the chances of us being able to do that with through the, any EU uh, deal would have been next to, zi- to, to zilch. Whereas in terms of the UK agreement, we are mentioned, and whilst we're not included for services at the moment because it's basically a like-for-like with the agreement that was previously with the EU, in the future we've got an opportunity to open up those things. So we were disappointed because we weren't able to get our act together, if you like, quick, quickly enough um, and to give enough assurance. But we are now on track. And also between um, Jersey and ourselves particularly, we've put in, and, and the Isle of Man have been involved in this as well, a framework so that any new uh, negotiations for a new agreement that are opened into, we enter in right at the start saying all the different chapters, These, th- this would be our approach. So the UK have got an idea of where our interests lie they're not always having to come back to us on every single one they can take this framework approach and that we can follow 
that helps us in terms of following and keeping pace with uh, the speed at which they move forward. But to answer your question, I mean, the, the law officers um, are, are very busy. It's a matter of priority. But like I say, my team have taken on a number of legal um, advisors, largely because we knew we couldn't rely upon the law officers at every juncture to be involved in these things. So it, it sounds uh, as though you're characterising this as a, as a huge potential for mm-hmm. our, um, for what could be an, a, a new leap forward for our finance industry locally. Do you see it that way? Yes, and not just finance, as I said. I, I do think there are a lot of new emerging industries in the creative area that could benefit from this as well. Um, and uh, it's a little bit like, if I can say, when the UK joined the EU and... Uh, the Crown Dependencies decided not to go in that direction or to, 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 to negotiate a Protocol 3, as it was. Um, that had a negative effect on certain parts of our industry. Agriculture and horticulture traditionally declined after that, couldn't compete with the sort of subsidies and the um, common agricultural policies of the, the EU. But um, it had a great effect on our funds, finance, um, insurance uh, industries in a, a way that eventually, and it took some time, but became uh, the, the boom years of the 1980s and, and 90s, and we're still living off uh, the glory of that, if you like. I think this will take some time because um, emerging opportunities do take a time for, 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 for people to realise exactly where the investment is necessary and to bring that to fruition. But it certainly will open those doors um, that uh, otherwise would have been shut to us. Thank you for that overall sort of picture of where we are in our sort of international relations. I feel as though um, it, having a member of policy and resources on our programme today would be uh, it would be remiss of me not to also address um, uh, what's been up for discussion uh, and w- will be debated later this month uh, in the states. Which is, of course, the government work plan. So I just want to um, uh, ask you about that as well. It's obviously quite a, a relatively new way of doing business in the states. It's uh, an attempt to streamline as much as possible the efforts of uh, the um, um, staff generally to things you can get done in this political term rather than sort of trying to work on everything at once. Um, it came under scrutiny just the other day um, and it appeared from that uh, scrutiny management committee hearing that um, one of the one of the principal issues that, that uh, you, you were concerned about, you and your colleagues on the committee, is the, um, the, the shortage of uh, human resources in order to actually get all this work done, even having cut it down to uh, the not the bare bones but the you know a a, a list of uh, priorities so uh, you know with with major decisions being deferred on harbors tax review and uh, secondary pensions and with staff time under so much uh, pressure what are we going to see getting done in this term and and is there is there a risk of sort of stasis and, and not seeing through these big decisions mm, i think that is it is a real risk and that's why some of my colleagues, and I don't disagree with them on the committee, feel that even though we have honed down the priorities to like the top 10 and, and then you know, made it clear in terms of some of the capital investment, there's some things that we just will not be able to do. Uh, even though that's the case, now where we are with uh, war in, in, in Ukraine, with rising inflation, with uh, unem- uh, unemployment being at the lowest levels for so long. I mean, that, those things are bizarre in, 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 in uh, living history. Those things don't normally all happen at once. That, that it is very difficult to see how we could continue to even deliver on, um, on what is, in my um, estimation, the best government work plan, business plan that we have seen um, since I was first elected. I was involved with the very first attempt at doing this with uh, Stuart Fuller and, and, and Jeff Mahi back, back in 2006. And um, then it wasn't costed. And we had something like 14 um, priorities. But if you look closely, you'll say that each, each of those 14 had about 10 below. And of course, it wasn't done. And it was it was in a sense, a waste of time, although I kept on saying at the time it was better than nothing. It was better than nothing, which is what we had before, 
But of course, in that era, we were running with uh, 50 million pound surpluses. And so in a sense, if an individual or a committee came to the state saying, I've got this great idea, we should be doing this. Um, and it went away and did it and it cost X and they ended up playing, paying X plus Y for it. Um, they got a wrap across the knuckles, but it was basically, well, we can afford to do it anyway. We're no longer in that era. And so, so does this make you less fleet of foot then as a government? Well, I think that's already being seen, isn't it? I mean, there, there, there are, as a government, there's a... Um, and you're speaking to someone here who believes in minimal government, OK? So I, I really don't believe that government should get too involved in people's affairs except to protect the weakest in our society or those without a voice or a society as a whole from threat from outside that's my thing now i'm not saying every, i'm not speaking i'm only speaking for myself here but having said that i think we are not able to react as quickly because we are suffering from the same problems that every business in our community, I think, some to a lesser or greater degree, are suffering from. And that is not having the right enough people to start with, but the right people to fulfil certain roles. And it doesn't matter how much money we've got, if we can't attract them, if we can't get them in place, then it isn't just a matter, as some have suggested, uh, of just filling gaps with any anyone. Um, that would be very foolish indeed, um, we've got to cut our expectation cloth to the right levels. And I think that was some of the messaging that you were picking up um, from the scrutiny hearing. And, and so um, do you think this is going likely to be solved over the next few years? I mean, obviously, everyone understands that recruitment in all areas is particularly difficult at the moment. Um, it, it's in a, it, we can't just click our fingers and say, well, solve the problem. But at the same time, we can't throw our hands up and say it's unsolvable. You know, there's clearly a lot of work and a lot of effort needs to be put in to solve this problem. Well, how, how are we going about that at the moment? Uh, yes, and in a sense, it's not achieved. It wouldn't be achieved by saying, well, it's pointless having the government work plan uh, because we're not going to achieve it. That, that's why I've come to the conclusion that of the two sort of options, two extremes, um, that I will say, let's stick with this, but let's change our expectations that we're going to be able to deliver everything on this. There will be some things that fall by the wayside. And I use, for example, the fact that in the 2012-2016 uh, term, um, when, when, when I, during which time I became chief minister, we had a, um, a, a, a plan called the Financial Transformation Programme that was very much mocked. Um, it had been brought in in the previous term, but very little had been done during that term to try and reduce government spending. We had a target of some 32 million a year to take off our budget. That was, I think, very ambitious. I mean, it would be considered ambitious today, but back then when our budget was smaller, that was very ambitious. We didn't achieve it. We achieved some 28 million, but that was quite an achievement. And I think it was better to have the target and not quite make it than adjust the target. Because if we'd reduced it to 28 million, we probably would only manage 24 million. Now, some of that has been lost uh, after afterwards, but it was a good thing to do. So in terms of, if I can sort of relate that to the government work plan, it's better that we have a target that is within the realms of reasonable uh, expectation but then we need to realize that probably as we go forward there are going to be some areas and some departments that say we're just not going to achieve this it's just not possible to do it because we've had a vacancy for you know two years in in this particular key area and therefore the, the work has not progressed to the degree we want that's inevitable and by you know uh, but just plugging that gap with someone who's promoted up, up or brought in but hasn't got quite the right qualifications isn't going to be... That's not the sort of compromise that works. We've got to be realistic. Um, and we're all facing this. Government isn't um, excluded from the sort of pressure that employers are finding all over the island at the moment. 
Um, and my final question on this sort of you know, work of the day, um, looking at the most recent uh, states debate that we just had, and you know I mentioned those um, delayed, deferred decisions. Um, uh, you know, you're amongst those who voted for the um, Cersei in favour of the Cersei to delay uh, debate on secondary pensions until November because of these issues that you listed just earlier in this kind of. Uh, uh, I think the term was used, perfect storm of problems. Um, is there any prospect at all of all these problems being much different in six months or any better in six months' time so that we'll actually be able to make a decision then or won't, won't the same argument be trotted out in November that now's not the right time either and we carry on? <laughs> Isn't there, is there any point in making any predictions anymore? Because we're living in such a world at the moment that uh, the sort of economic forecasts, the sort of um, political forecasts that people were making in the past and could be trust, even trust, trustworthy people seem to be getting it wrong at the moment. We're not in an era where it's, we're able to look at the past and say, well, this happened when these conditions occurred in the past and this is what we expect. We don't know. Uh, does that mean, so going back to my other point before, does that mean we should do nothing? No. It means we should take our best uh, best bet, but we have to do it in a snapshot. And that's not always a good way of working, but that's all we've got at the moment of how things look at the moment. I think at the moment with rising inflation, it would have been the wrong signal to say, and we're going to add this and this and this to your monthly expenses. That, would, that doesn't help at the moment. And we may well be in the same condition in November. We might be in a worse condition in November, in which case probably people will say, well, we should have done it then. Or some others will say, it's a good job we didn't do it then. You know, it, it, it isn't, we're not in a political era where it's possible to make comparisons with the past and say, uh, that's how it worked out best for them, we should do the same thing. It's just not, I mean, as I said before, rising inflation, and the sort of monetary pressures we've got at the moment, but very, almost, well, more than full un, uh, employment, very, very low unemployment, is not something the world has seen in living memory. And that causes some very strange behaviours. Um, you say, you know, who can make a prediction anymore? One prediction that has been made, I think, by the state's treasurer is that um, possibly 100 families will be uh, claiming income support um, in uh, a generation's time who might have avoided that fate had they uh, had we introduced secondary pensions now. Um, and you've spoken of your um, wanting to prioritise um ensuring the weakest in society are, are, are looked after how you know can we can we correlate those two things well the question is can they be looked after by a society um that we don't know how we don't know how big it will be how it will look and yes but it probably won't be the cheapest way and the most economic way economic way of looking after them because i would if the Cersei had failed i would have voted to continue with the propositions. I think they're the best options we've got. But it was creating the wrong impression to people. Now, we can't keep on doing this. We've got to bite the bullet and, and take it. But for me, there is a time for things. And at the moment, the only way in which we can really judge things is in the moment. We're not able to do what we've done in the past and uh, make comparisons with uh, circumstances and conditions that occurred uh, in the past. It, it, it's, it's, it, it, these are exceptional. I've, I've used that word too much in recent years, but these are exceptional times. Economically, they're exceptional times. Okay, well, thanks for addressing those uh, questions uh, uh, without any forewarning. Um, uh, can I just uh, finish where we began? By um, you, you mentioned in one of your replies there about um, the importance of relations uh, and that, that word and that, you know the, the several meanings of that word in your work. Um, what, what do you think um, 
it has meant that uh, for, for our island and perhaps for, for the, the Commonwealth more generally, um, that we have had in position as monarch this one same person for this remarkable 70 years. Has, do you think that's made a difference to the way things operate, as opposed to, say, we could easily have had three or four monarchs in that time? Yes, or we could have had a succession of presidents <laughs> with those that don't say. So, I mean, in terms of the... Uh, options for a head of state. I, I think we've had an exemplary head of state. We have an exemplary head of state. The fact that she has been in position through so many different decades, different cultures, you could say, culture has changed dramatically from the 1950s post-war period. My, my parents, you know, lived through the Second World War and, um, you know, often told me of, of, of what that was like. Um, but uh, I think she came from a family, and I've, I've heard many, many stories of her father and, and the leadership that he gave to the country during the Second World War. She comes from that stock, and therefore celebrating the fact that she has been um, the sort of rock-like um, foundation and something to look up to and something that someone who's been able to associate with the, the pains of the, the average person, I think, as well, in our own family issues um, throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, but provides stability and a sense of service. I mean, for me, certainly, if, if nothing else, um, Her Majesty is an example of service to country. And... I think we do need those today. I think role models are few and far between in this um, very populist culture where you can be famous for just being famous. Um, she's clearly not. She has far more substance than that. And I've been privileged to meet her a number of times um, and I even have a discussion about Guernsey French once with her, which was, which was great. And she was charming, very easy to talk to and yet um, obviously with a lot of weight on her shoulders in terms of the model that she provides not just um, in these islands and in um, Great Britain but in the Commonwealth as well. Deputy Jonathan Latoc, thanks very much for uh, giving us your time this morning and, uh, and your thoughts and uh, I hope that you and indeed all our listeners uh, have a great Platinum Jubilee weekend. Thank you very much.